true stories about remote abandoned locations rich in history. Come with us in our travels from state to state, if you dare. <laughs> Hello? Julie, there is a beehive over there. Do you see that in the hole? Buckle up, buttercup. Welcome to 50 States of Madness. Hi, good evening. Welcome to 50 States of Madness. Hi, welcome. How are you? I'm doing good this evening. You don't uh, sound good. I know. You hear my voice, right? It's a little bit off. I mean, I off. can kind of hear it. I know. I'm really stuffy, so I have a little bit of Ricola right here for me so I can take it. I have Gina's tea, not Ted's tea today, <laughs> but that's okay. It's in our mug. Good old, just plain old green tea. Just green tea with yeah. honey. Nothing special, Ted. Yes, to help um, it doesn't with have my Ted's throat. Touch. I know. Well, traveled a little bit over the weekend for my husband and daughter's birthday. So yeah, you were gone. I was, and it was a little short trip, but I think maybe... I might have caught something while I was over there, but I'm, I tested today. I'm negative. Just putting it out there. I'm negative. I do not have COVID. Um, I think it's just either really, really super bad allergies. I've been saying that all week because I'm in denial. Yeah. But it might might be in turning into a little bit of a cold. I think so. Yeah. But hopefully I'll get over it soon. So but you're going to be... nevertheless, we're here. We are. And you're going to do most of the show gonna, today. Cause, I got a lot of reading to do. Because of my voice. Um, yeah. We're not going to make her strain her little voice and yeah. talk. So I will be doing a lot of reading today. I'll be the little sidekick. Okay. You know, yeah. I'm good at sidekicking. And plus, especially if I'm going to be sucking on this Rocola. Okay. What? Where's Dan's bun? Oh, Heidi. We need a sound effect. <laughs> I have to call him. Where's my... I have to call him and figure out how to work those buttons. Cause how to work it. I haven't figured out how to do that yet. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so, yeah, but how are you good. doing? I'm okay. You told me there was a little story you wanted to share with me. I do. I went to uh, McDonald's yesterday to get... A, a diet coke because anybody who knows me knows that i love my diet coke and my pink drinks yes so i went last night and i went to mcdonald's and i i went in the, in the drive-thru and um the guy's like oh can i help you i said yeah can i get a diet coke please it was so nice <laughs> so i pulled up to the window and um he was he was a little odd looking but i mean yeah you know coming from me um, so then he looks at me and he says to me, welcome to my death chamber. Oh, good Lord. Wait a second. Did you find your soulmate? I'm sorry at McDonald's. I'm sorry, Johnny. Did you find your soulmate? <laughs> that matchup's pretty good. So then you're like, I just giggled because it hadn't even processed in my head yet what he said to me. And then I turned around and I looked at him and I said, pardon me? And he was like, oh, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. He's like, have a good night. And I just drove away and I came home and I, I told Trey, I told my son, I was like, this guy at McDonald's right now just welcomed me to his, his yeah. death chamber. You need to take me to this McDonald's. I was like, oh my God, it's the one right here at the corner. So, yeah, so I was like, um, okay, want to be a guest on the podcast? I know, right? I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> 
Yeah, so. It might be a subject of one of ours one right? day. I know. Yeah, I might be the subject of no. my own podcast here before long if I keep my Diet Coke at that McDonald's. Anyway. Oh, what um, story are we doing today? So today we're doing, um, I'm a little nervous about this one, I got to say. It's not got a lot of information. Not, not nervous. Um, not nervous in that sense. Um, this is just the first true crime episode that we've done. It is. We so, don't really do a lot of them. We haven't done one at all this season. I mean, it's our first season, so we haven't done one. Yeah, at all we this haven't done one. one. We have a couple uh, planned to do, but this is the first one. Um, it's hard because you want to be respectful to the family. Yeah, want to be respectful to the victims, and you want to give the information as accurate as possible. Yeah, I did. I did a lot of. Um, I did a lot of research on this one. I listened to different podcasts. I did a lot of reading. Um, and there's just, there's a lot of information about it, but it's, yeah. um, it's a rough one to get through. So um, I just want to warn anybody listening or watching that um, this episode does contain um, talk of sexual assault, um, murder, and suicide. So if anybody is sensitive to any of those, topics this probably is not um the episode for you to watch or listen yeah, so definitely so. yeah so today we're going to talk about um a woman by the name of lisa marie kimmel um and this case is also called um little miss murder case is what um it's called so um lisa marie kimmel was born july 18th 1969 in tennessee at three years old, her family moved to Billings, Montana, where her parents, Ron and Sheila, raised her and her siblings. When she was a teenager, she got a job at Arby's. Her mom was director of operations for the fast food chain, which meant that they spent a lot of time in Denver, Colorado, where they stayed in a company, a company rented apartment. Uh, Denver is about a seven to eight hour drive from Billings, Montana. After Lisa graduated, she moved to Denver and started managing an Arby's restaurant out there. It was said that Lisa really enjoyed her job. Um, Lisa was a go-getter, and if she wanted something, she would set her mind to it and get it, which is exactly how she got her car. Without telling anybody on a whim, she went out and bought a black brand new 1988 Honda CRX all on her own. Um, she also got personalized plates for her car that read Lil Miss. Um, and this came from a nickname that she was given by her grandmother. When Lisa had time, she would drive home to Billings, Montana to visit her family. Uh, on March 25th, 1988, Lisa would set out for a trip to Billings. She was planning on introducing her then boyfriend, Ed, to her family. Lisa met Ed through mutual friends who lived in Billings. They didn't get to spend much time together due to the fact that Ed lived in Cody, Wyoming, uh, which is about a seven-hour drive from Denver. Their initial plan was to meet in Casper, Wyoming, which was halfway the halfway point between Cody, Wyoming, and Denver, Colorado. Uh, they were going to meet with some friends in Casper before heading to Billings. However, the plans with their friends got changed. Uh, then they decided that Lisa would drive all the way to Cody, Wyoming, to Ed's house late Friday night, and then travel together to Billings, in which they would arrive sometime in the late afternoon on Saturday. And I just want to say that that's a far drive to drive on your own because we drove those roads. Mm -hmm. We went through Casper yeah. towards Cody. 
And um, it is a very um, quiet, isolating mm-hmm. drive at yeah. night if you're doing it by yourself. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even during the day, we it's not like we're passing a lot of people. There's nothing. Yeah, there's not, not much out there. And so. there's not a lot of towns you're passing. There's not a lot of, um, well, definitely no big cities. I mean, Mm-mm. it's Cody and then it, the closest big city going towards that way, what would be? Lander? Uh, probably. Maybe. And that's not even. Yeah. And that's. I mean. Yeah. I don't even, yeah, I don't even know if you go, I'm trying to think, no, because you go to Shoshone, no, what is the name of the little one that you go, I don't even remember, but I don't even think you hit anything really big, Mm -mm. because it kind of goes, you know, up, and you're kind of passing the, oh, sorry, (laughs) passing those big towns, Yeah, you don't don't even see me hitting the mic, sorry, because I haven't focused on Gina right now, (laughs) but yeah, I'm just the voice in the sky, Um, so yeah. Yeah, it's... um it's it's a it's not a drive that you know most people would do on their own um but funny you say that because lisa's mom sheila offered to drive with her since she would be driving alone at night um through some very remote areas but lisa decided that she was okay to make the drive alone uh they went over the map uh time and time again to make sure that she knew exactly where she was going Uh, Lisa was supposed to leave Denver about 3 p.m. on Friday, March 25th. Records show that she called Ed around 4 o'clock in the afternoon to tell him that she was running a bit behind and that she would be leaving sometime around 5 o'clock. Fast forward to around 9 p.m. Lisa was pulled over in Douglas, Wyoming. Uh, She was speeding. (laughs) She was told um, because she was out of state that she would need to pay a $120 fine immediately. Um, a lot of people are saying like, um, I read a lot of comments saying that like, oh, this isn't like, this isn't true. Um, I guess, however, this is true that people are known to carry cash when they're out of state, because if they get pulled over, they literally pay their fine right there. Well, yeah. Back in the day, we didn't have like Zelle or like instant pay that you can mm-hmm. pay. Yeah. And so, and, and I mean, I'm not going to be Zelle and a police officer. Yeah. No. <laughs> and I know it does sound weird, but I know in Mexico you do that, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And you think not in the U.S., but during the time, I mean, we've got to remember this is the 80s. Mm-hmm. So it's like you can't get that person to come back from out of state to go to their no, court. And, so. and I remember this actually brought back like a memory for me because back probably 28 or so years ago, um, my ex-husband, sorry, <laughs> uh, <laughs> We're driving through Arizona and he got pulled over for speeding. And I remember having to go to the ATM to get cash to pay his ticket or they were going to put him in jail. Yeah, it wasn't unusual. No. And I remember being in the middle of Tucson by myself with my son, who was like two or three years old at the time. And I had no idea where I was at trying to find an ATM and then trying to get back to the jail, which there's no, you know, I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have anything back then. And anybody who knows me know that I can't, I can't find my way out of a, (laughs) out of a box, (laughs) you know? So yeah, it, she comes to my house every day and has to use GPS. (laughs) the maps. (laughs) So it, yeah, this, this really happens. So, um, so she, uh, she didn't, she only had $40 in cash on her. Um, and so the officer actually followed her uh, to an ATM. However, the machine would not um, take her card because it was a different bank that she banked at. 
So instead Which, of, again, that's not unusual when you're out of state. Cause I remember in the eighties when I went to Vegas, well, one yeah. time I couldn't get cash out well, at the now, bank of America. Now they'll be able to, you can get money anywhere. They anywhere. Just charge yeah. you up the ass for it. <laughs> yeah, but right. you know, um, so being that, um, she wasn't able to get the money, the officer decided not to arrest her and allowed her to leave and promised to pay her ticket via mail. So she was, um, allowed to go. Uh, the officer gave her directions back to the highway and Lisa drove off a little after 9 PM. There were some reports that Lisa was seen at a grocery store in the Casper, Wyoming area. However, those reports are unconfirmed. Uh, at this point, Lisa was about four hours away from Ed's house in Cody, Wyoming. There's a lot of like twists and turns in this story. Um, I'm only following it, I think, well, because I've been there and I'm, I kind of know where these are. But if you're not from that area, um, it's kind of hard to follow because there's a lot of cities mentioned. Um, so she was about, um, four hours away from Cody at this point. And it was somewhere in this time that Lisa went missing. So she went missing in this four hour span, um, because she was not seen after this and she never made it to her boyfriend's house. Uh, he was expecting her sometime around one o'clock in the morning and he fell asleep waiting for her around 7 30 AM after there was no answer at her apartment, he started calling around. He then called the Denver Highway Patrol and the Wyoming Highway Patrol and told them that Lisa had gone missing while driving from Denver to Cody. Uh, note that these were not missing persons reports that were being filed. Um, they were called overdue arrival reports because at this time, I know now it's been changed to 24 hours, but at that time it was 72 hours. That's a long time for somebody to go missing. time. I mean, that's a very long time. What's the, what's the thing they say when somebody goes missing? What's it's the first 48 48 hours hours that are most crucial. Yeah. So here they are waiting 72 hours. Um, yeah, they're like, you know, they're waiting. Yeah. yeah, So at this time they were just called an overdue arrival report. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know if those even exist anymore. So at, at this time in Wyoming, you know, you had to wait the 72 hours before filing a missing persons report. So he tried to call uh, her parents, but got no answer because they were actually on a ski trip at this time. So when they returned home that afternoon, um, they got a call from Lisa's boss in Denver saying that Ed had reached out to him uh, to see if he had any idea of Lisa's whereabouts. Um, it's reported that Ed had called numerous people in hopes to find her. Uh, when Lisa's mom talked to her boss, uh, she was not too alarmed because at this point she wasn't expecting Lisa for a few more hours. So she figured that Lisa just got caught up with friends or something. So she was, she never made it to Ed's house, but she still wasn't really, I don't think they were panicking quite yet. Um, after about 15 minutes, uh, Lisa's mom got on the phone with another friend who had called looking for Lisa and informed her that she never made it to Ed's. And that she was, in fact, missing. So Ed then decided to drive to Billings um, to uh, Ron and Sheila's house to see what to do next. So at this time, you got to remember, her boyfriend, Ed, did not know her parents. This is what this whole trip was planned for. They They had not met him yet. So this is their first meeting. So he's driving to her parents' house because she's now missing. I don't know about you, but I would accuse the boyfriend first <laughs> right like excuse me um but it, it does sound like he um is 
going to all lengths trying to find her, calling people, calling her work, yeah. call, trying to get a hold of her parents, trying to get a hold of anybody that he can. Um, that obviously, I mean, at this point, I don't know how long they have been dating, but I don't know how yeah. many contact numbers he had at that point. And no judgment on the parents at all for not worrying. I think it depends on your child. I have three of them. Yeah. And there's just, you know, one of them, I might not worry at all if they don't come up missing for a few hours. But, you know, I have another one who the first, you know, 10 minutes, if they're not walking through the door, I'm nervous. Yeah. So it just, you know, it depends on the child. And it sounds like she was really independent. Yeah. So, you know, someone like that who was really responsible, really independent, yeah. you know, you probably, you probably wouldn't, wouldn't worry. You'd too probably much. be like, you know what, let's just, you know, I think after, it sounds like after talking to, um, you know, more people getting the confirmation that like, yeah, she She's hasn't, hasn't she seen hasn't anybody. been seen. Yeah, by anyone. So um, at this time, um, Sheila, Lisa's mom, called uh, the Wyoming Highway Patrol and asked that the overdue arrival report um, got changed to an attempt to locate, which is still not missing a person's report. So, which, again, I still, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how I, I, did, I feel about that. I did read or heard somewhere. Was that about at the point where they had the favor done because some kind of connection? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I know. So when one of the officers ran a report with Lisa's information, that's when it came up that Lisa was pulled over the night before in Douglas. So this actually gave them an area in which to search for Lisa. Uh, Ron and Sheila at this time got a plane to fly over the area between Douglas and Cody, hoping to be able to see something from the air. Her father also drove multiple different routes in hopes to find her. The family had a friend who was a private investigator who put them in touch with various departments and alerted them to Lisa's disappearance before she was officially reported missing. Uh, the private investigator also helped them get uh, Lisa's report. Lisa reported as a missing person on Sunday night, which at that time had only been 48 hours. Okay. So that's where so, the connection came. Yeah. In. Okay. So, and that was a favor. And that was at 48 hours that they were able to do that. That's insane. So, so at this point, two full complete days had passed yes. and nobody has seen her or heard her, heard from her. So in the next few days, multiple news articles were printed and there were many non-credible sightings of Lisa. They now believe that there was foul play involved because if Lisa had car trouble or been in an accident, she would have been found by now. She would have been at a local hospital or somebody would have seen her on the side of the road. Um, on April 2nd, 1988, eight days after Lisa disappeared, a man by the name of Greg was fishing in the North Platte River in Casper, Wyoming, and found Lisa's body floating in about 18 inches of water. He had just heard a story about a missing woman from Montana and connected this to the body found. The police were unable to immediately identify the body, but they all had pretty strong feelings uh, that the body was this of Lisa Marie Kimmel. And um, we... We did go visit that spot. We did. Yeah, we did see, uh, and in our background, that's the... The bridge. The bridge. And um, we did kind of try to guess where, you know... It's not very big. It's it's not a big location. Like, if she was found somewhere, it's... It's not, tra you know, it's not, it's not a travel... It's not a travel... Like, d cars don't drive over that bridge. No, it wasn't busy at all. Um, I'm not... I don't think at that time it, they did either. Um, there's been a new bridge built that cars use. So it's kind of off to the side of the road. Yeah. Cars aren't driving. Over cars aren't way. driving over it. We so. had to kind of go off a dirt road we have to, go to the off, side yeah. and then walk up to the bridge. Yeah. And yeah. we found something there when we walked up to the bridge. 
we did. So we, we walked up to this bridge and um, we noticed that there was a bouquet of red roses that was um, kind of left there, just left there on, on the bridge. And they looked about what? About, yeah, they weren't about a week old. Two yeah. Weeks old, yeah. They like weren't that. even completely dead. Yeah. And, um, so we just assumed like, you know, somebody had put them there. Um, we didn't know why. No. So we did, we took pictures of them. And, um, just the other day I was talking to, um, my bus driver and she, you know, had asked me what episode we were going to do. So we were kind of talking about this episode and she said, Oh, do you think that they were put there? Like in Memorial of something, was it the anniversary of anything? And I thought, no, April 2nd. And then I, we were there in we were July, there August in late July and early August, early yeah. August. And I realized that her, um, her birthday is July 18th. So, so maybe somebody possibility. possibility somebody, somebody had, um, yeah, I like to think there. it was. Yeah, I think that's sweet. Yeah, it was a a, a beautiful, beautiful bouquet. big bouquet. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, it. Um, I don't know. Who knows? Yeah, we'll say that it was. I'll just say yeah. We'll say that it was. So, um, a positive identification was made a day or two later, and Lisa's body was found wearing only socks and underwear. The black and white sweater the pair of jeans and the shoes that she had last been seen in were missing. Um, this is where it gets a little, a little hard. Um, Lisa's skull had been fractured and it was determined that the head wound would have rendered her unconscious and been fatal in a matter of minutes. However, the killer had stabbed Lisa six times. Five of the stab wounds uh, were in a circle on her chest and the sixth was in her upper abdomen, all of which hit major organs. Uh, because there were no defensive wounds, it was believed that Lisa was struck on the head and knocked unconscious and then stabbed. Uh, there were also um, marks indicating at some point that she was bound and tied up. However, her body was not found with any bindings on them. They didn't find any rope or anything. Um, after the investigators searched the area, it led them to a bridge about a quarter mile from where her body was found and the name of the bridge is the old government bridge. And that's the bridge that we were talking that's about. That's the one that we were on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, blood matching Lisa's uh, blood type was found on the bridge. It is thought that Lisa had been taken to this bridge, struck on the head, stabbed, and then thrown into the water. This bridge is not in use and it has no car traffic on it at all. There's been a newer bridge built in which cars now use. In order to get to this bridge, it requires you do a bit of off-roading, which isn't really visible from the road. This led investigators to believe that this is uh, that this was someone that was very familiar with the area, which I agree because yeah, it, it took, took us, us. We kind of had to do a flip a U-turn. We um, yeah, we kind of passed where we were supposed to enter. It's very easy flip to drive. The U-turn. Yeah. It's, and try it's to find easy it, to, to pass by there. To pass so, by the little, and we kind of were looking for it, and we kind of knew on the GPS where to where go, we were going and it was still still a little, little hard, hard to, to find. Yeah. yeah. So um, according to reports, there were witnesses who <gasps> report seeing headlights on the bridge around 2 a.m., which would be about five hours after Lisa was pulled over for speeding. This initially led them to believe that Lisa was killed the same night that she went missing. However, being that the water in the North Platte River is extremely cold. It helped to preserve Lisa's body, which makes it hard to check for decomposition. 
uh, there were signs that Lisa's body had only been in the water for about 36 hours. There was semen found on Lisa's body, and it was confirmed that she had been sexually assaulted. Uh, They continued to search by land and by air, and there were still no signs of Lisa's car. Within six months, they had about uh, 1,000 tips and 16 people that were possible suspects. In March of 1989, this case aired on the TV show Unsolved Mysteries, uh, which generated even more leads. There was a man in the area that drove the same kind of car, and his wife had a striking resemblance resemblance to Lisa. So um, they're thinking that maybe some of these sightings were actually this man and his wife. Yeah, that's what I um, had heard was that there was a lot of like false sightings because the car wasn't uncommon, but they thought because of the license plate, it was going to be a little bit easier for it to stand out. But yeah, I think think people were maybe just looking for, for faces. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So who knows? Uh, there were several rewards in the area offered and eventually they were all lumped together to total $25,000. However, this reward would never be claimed and was later converted into a scholarship in Lisa's memory. Uh, Lisa's family wanted the case turned over to a federal task force because they didn't feel like the police department was able to keep up with the amount of tips coming in. However, Sheriff Ron Ketchum refused. He told Ron and Sheila that they weren't the victims that Lisa was and that they would be arrested for obstruction of justice if they continued to try to assemble a federal task force to take over Lisa's case. I'm sorry, but it's a shame that... Infuriating. Yeah, that you're going to threaten the victim's parents. Yeah. Of arrest because they just want justice. Justice for their child. For their child. Yep. It's just... And yeah, how does by any of doing this make them the victims? I think, to, I think it's ego. I think, a lo- <laughs> you know, like... I, I can't even figure it out as to why they would do that. I mean, you can't even get in their brain and try to yeah, it just reason it. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Uh, the detectives working this case, however, wanted um, the help because they knew that they didn't have the manpower to be able to correctly work this case. Eventually, after about a year without the con- uh, consent of Sheriff Ron Ketchum, the U.S. Attorney's Office stepped in and the task force was assembled. Uh, They decided to pursue the angle of DNA with the semen that was found. By this time, it was the early 90s, and they had access to to a forensic lab because now the FBI was involved. Uh, At this time, the detectives collected DNA samples from everyone that had anything to do with Lisa around the time of her murder. Lisa's boyfriend, Ed, was ruled out uh, quite early on due to his alibi. However, he was one of the first people that they collected a blood sample from, and he was then officially ruled out when the DNA was not a match. Did, what about the police officer? So Ed I was, Oh, Ed. Yeah. Free. So Ed's, Ed's free. What about the police officer? A little suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> so even though there was an audio recording of their interaction, they also tested the police officer. That oh, pulled, there you go. I that, didn't even, <laughs> honestly, I didn't even know she was going to go there. So I'm just asking questions. <laughs> that pulled Lisa over uh, for speeding in Douglas, Wyoming. As soon as um, they asked him for a sample, he agreed to be tested and he was then officially ruled out. Uh, Then Sheila Kimmel, Lisa's mom, did a radio talk show about the case. After the show aired, a woman called in a tip line saying that she saw Lisa pulled over in Natrona County by Sheriff Ron Ketchum. 
Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. Now remember, this is the guy that is, you know. Wow. Yeah. This this is the guy who doesn't want this to be like a big thing, you know. The twists and want turns keep coming. Yeah. So if you remember, uh, Sheriff Ketchum was the one who tried to keep the federal investigate investigators off of this case. So, so, so she was pulled over by the one officer who was tested, and also by Ron Ketchum. Well, or he was the officer who was tested. No, no, no. Oh, okay. No, he wasn't the one that pulled her over for speeding. But she was seen with him. According to according an to an eyewitness. Yes. Okay. So, um, so near the two-year anniversary of Lisa's murder, Sheriff Ketchum attempted suicide by overdosing. Uh, he, did, he did recover from this incident and was treated for depression. This made the family question if there was something more... Uh, going on at this time he had already left his job he was later interviewed about his whereabouts on that night and he said that he was not on duty however the dispatch records showed that he actually was on duty then they asked him for a dna sample because he was now a person of interest Uh, ketchum was infuriated and refused to give a sample for four and a half months until there was a threat of a court order at this point, he agreed to give a DNA sample, and it was not a match. This all uh, poses a lot of questions. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah, why? I mean, why was he being so difficult? Yeah, I'll let you finish. Your, you know, because you did most of the research on this. But um, I'm wondering, is there a connection between him and the actual guy who was caught? But I'll let you. Like, maybe there's yeah. not. I mean, so I'll listen. let me see where this is going yeah so um it was said that um that he was a very difficult man to understand and he had a lot of issues but nobody knows what was really going on with him um in the year 2000 ron ketchum committed suicide however it was said that it had nothing to do with lisa's murder um and it was completely and he was completely cleared from the case and investigators moved on to other suspects so um one suspect being um, that this case had a very ritualistic aspect to it. If you remember that Lisa was stabbed five times in a purposeful pattern and the sixth being near the center. By connecting the five points in a circle, you make a pentagram. Uh, there is a cultish group in the Casper area at that time, <clears throat> and they wore robes with a similar pattern to Lisa's wound pattern. Wow. So um, this group consisted of about 20 people, and when questioned, they all cooperated with authorities and were all later ruled out. I was shocked to hear that they cooperated. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I mean, if they thank didn't God do they did. Anything, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, after this, more than though, Ron Ketchum. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, after this, rumors began to spread about cults being involved with uh, Lisa's case, and the facts had begun to be be very misconstrued at this point um, with stories going around that didn't resemble the truth at all. Uh, There were horrible rumors of missing organs from Lisa's body. After the police started to receive uh, tips related to this, none of which were true. um, This made it easy for them to quickly rule these out. In 1992, the police reported um, there was a police report saying that they believed there were two people involved with Lisa's murder. They said to be thought it said to be thought that these people felt no guilt, had no remorse for what they had done. And they felt like it was um, 
not the only time that they had done something like this and it wouldn't be the last anything of this nature. So um, they also thought that this person or persons were local to the area and had limited relationships with women and were more than likely under the influence of drugs or alcohol. Uh, the killer would not be found, however, for another 10 years. <clears throat> so, so um, 40% of Wyoming then were, no, just kidding. I'm just kidding, <laughs> Wyoming. Just kidding. I love Wyoming. Stop. <laughs> I'm just kidding. They get us canceled already, I aren't know. you? No, no, no. I'm Wyoming's just kidding. going to cancel I us. love Wyoming. <clears throat> okay. So at this time, uh, the DNA sample, uh, the DNA databases were not connected like they are now. In 1997, the state of Wyoming started to collect DNA samples um, of anyone who was convicted of a felony. However, they didn't connect to CODIS, the federal database, until 2002. So I guess once it's connected, then that's when things would start to pop up at that oh. point. So that wasn't until... 2002. So here we are 10 years later. Um, Lisa's case was at the top of the Wyoming's li of Wyoming's list to be entered. I'm into sorry. CODIS. 10 years later from not the date where she was found. No, from, from 1992. 1992. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Yeah. And she was found in, she was murdered in 88. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. The years are passing. Okay. Yes. So um, Lisa's case was at the top of the list um, to be entered into CODIS. And in July of 2002, they immediately got a hit to a federal inmate by the name of Dale Wayne Eaton. He was now a person of interest. At this time, at the time of Lisa's murder, Eaton was 43 years old. Uh, when he was identified, he was 57 years old <clears throat> at this time now in 2002. Um, he had a very extensive criminal record and had a hard time keeping a job as he always had issues at his workplace. Uh, three of these issues uh, were work-related. They were actual assaults, and he was fired. So he was actually assaulting people. There's a pattern. Yeah. Um, Eaton then got married to a woman named Melody, and the couple went on to have three children. Their marriage lasted for about 15 years, and it was said to be very unhappy times, <clears throat> and the couple separated multiple times during those 15 years. Uh, during this one of um, Eaton's children was removed from the home by the state because it was reported that he had sexually molested him. Uh, one of the other children said that Eaton was very, very um, abusive, and the third disagreed. So you have three different viewpoints, <laughs> you know, and well, who knows? Yeah, I was going to say sometimes, you know, the older children get it, the younger donor, vice versa. Yeah, so I you mean, never know. You can live in the same household and have three different exactly. experiences from the same parents. Yeah. So. Who knows? Um, in 1986, Melody left the marriage for good. At this time, Eaton uh, said he was suicidal over the breakup and was put into a facility where he was diagnosed with depression. After being released, Eaton moved to a family property in Moneta, Wyoming. That was very under, like a very underdeveloped um, area. It had a few buildings on it and only a converted bus that Eaton used as a home. This is where he lived was in this bus. Um, there was no electricity. There was no gas. There was no running water. Um, basically by home, what it was, was the seats were removed and he had a bed, wow. <laughs> which he slept in um, and a small propane stove. And that was we, it. we drove by Moneta. Yeah. It's nothing's around there. There's nothing there. It's, There's absolutely nothing there. Yeah. It's, 
one of those ones where if you blink, you'll you'll miss it. Miss it. Yeah. So yeah, there's yeah. nothing. Absolutely. So um, at this time, he would take odd jobs um, here and there for money. However, most of the time he was um, just scavenging around the area for things when he needed them. Um, he had made friends with some of his neighbors in the area and they would let him use their shower every once in a while. But they said it was about once a month. So this guy was showering about once a month. Um, Eaton had a relationship with a woman named Carrie However, uh, it was a long-distance relationship because she lived in Nevada. Uh, They didn't see much of each other, um, but she claimed that she never saw the dark or mean side of him. Her nickname for him, however, was Junkyard Dale, which I thought. (laughs) That's that's the man I want to date. Yeah, right? Um, After Lisa's disappearance, Eaton moved around to different parts of Wyoming, Utah, Colorado, and Nevada. In September of 1997, Eaton was arrested for aggravated assault in Red Desert, Wyoming. So um, this is an interesting story. Um, A couple named Shannon and Scott Breeden. No, not Shannon. Right? (laughs) Shannon and Scott. um, They were on a road trip with their very young infant son who... um, They were traveling and apparently had some car trouble. Eaton stopped and offered them um, a ride to a shop that he claimed was owned by his brother. The couple and their son got into his van and they headed um, they headed to this so-called shop. At some point, Eaton said that he was getting very tired and asked Shannon if she would drive while he took a nap in the back of the van. When Eaton got in the back of the van and Shannon started to drive, he pulled out a gun and ordered her to drive down a dirt path in which she did. While driving down this dirt path, Shannon realized that they were getting further and further away from the main road, and she took the wheel and quickly jerked it, causing Eaton to lose his balance and basically fall down. Can I just say all Shannons are really smart? (laughs) Well, this one is. (laughs) And this one right here, too. Sometimes. Um, Shannon then told her husband to grab the baby and run, which he did. Um, Scott ran to a nearby bush and hid the baby underneath this bush. But I just want to say, like, all of this stuff that's taking place right now, like, you have to be so on your game to to be doing this stuff as this stuff is going on. Like, this is in the moment thinking. I was going to say, you are... Spot like most people won't think this quickly on their feet, like and just to be in that moment, like who would think to take this baby, put him under a bush, and then run back? It sounds like a Hallmark movie, you know, after school. Like it's so like if it was not a true story, I would not believe that it would ever happen. Like it's got to be written. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, so. Um, he ran to a nearby bush where he put the baby underneath it and then ran back to the van um, where it had now the van had come to a stop. By this time, Shannon had started running away to get away from Eaton and he was following close behind her. <clears throat> he finally caught up with her and he had a knife in his hand attempting to stab her. By this time, um, Scott had caught up to her um, and he saw that there was Eaton's rifle on the ground. Scott grabbed the gun and he hit Eaton eaten in the head with the butt of the gun, uh, knocking him to the floor. And then he grabbed the knife and he stabbed him. Even this wouldn't keep Eaton down. So at this time, Scott fired the gun at him, but he missed. Eaton then told Scott that if he fired the gun one more time, that the gun would blow up. 
Not wanting to take any chances, Scott decided to beat Eaton with the gun some more until he could not get back up. At this point, Eaton tapped out and he said to Scott, I'm done. Um, the couple then got their baby into the van and Scott told Shannon to um, run over Eaton. However, she was so focused on trying to get out of the area that she didn't do it. Later, when the cops got there, Eaton was still alive, but not in the best shape. Um, after being arrested, they realized that Eaton was not mentally stable. He was given a plea deal where he pled guilty to aggravated assault. He got a two to five year sent suspended sentence in a halfway house in Casper, Wyoming. About two months into serving time in this halfway house, Eaton decided to leave. After the trial was over, Eaton was given his van back. So he had transportation. So he really Why? was only for two months. Why? Yeah. Why is he giving this stuff back? And here's your van that you kidnapped and tried to murder people in. Yeah. So um, he was on the run for about two weeks before he was caught and thrown in jail. This got him uh, five years in the state prison. So the day um, the day he was arrested, he had a rifle in the van with him, which made him a felon in possession of a firearm, which is a federal charge, uh, which also meant that he had to give a DNA sample. That was then entered into CODIS. In October 2000, Eaton was granted parole on the state charges and then was turned over to federal government to deal with the firearms charge. He was then sent to Colorado to serve his time there. In 2002, Wyoming connected to CODIS and uploaded the DNA of Lisa's killer and Dale Eaton's name popped up. So here we are 10 years later. Um, finally, you know. They get a hit on this. Yeah. I mean, at least there's like, what is that? The silver lining? Yeah. You know? Yeah, definitely. Um, so the investigators <clears throat> were able to obtain a search warrant for the property where Eaton was living at the time of Lisa's disappearance. Um, at this time, a neighbor of Eaton's told police that around the time Lisa went missing, he had seen him dig a huge hole in his backyard with a backhoe. Um, when he questioned Eaton, um, he told him that it was for a septic tank. However, there was never any plumbing that went in. So um, at this time, 14 years had already passed and the neighbor couldn't exactly remember where the hole had been dug. However, there were a few areas of disturbed ground. After checking out a few of these areas on July 20th, 2002, buried six feet underground, they found Lisa Kimmel's car. How many years later was this? 14. 14 years 14 later. 14 years later. They found her car. He had he buried, buried it, it in his backyard. Yes. In, in front of people because <clears throat> they saw his him neighbor digging yeah. the hole. Mm -hmm. And asked. Somebody asked him. He said it was for a septic, a septic tank. Uh, what but was I mean, the car before But here's the that, thing. Here's like, the thing, though. You know, we all have neighbors around us, like... Would you be suspicious if your neighbor was digging a hole in his backyard? I wouldn't. I was going to say, I probably wouldn't even approach my neighbor and ask him yeah, I what it's for. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I'm not, I'm not real sure. I'd I be would, like, when's the pool party? Yeah, I'm not real sure if 14 years later, I would even remember that I, oh, I yeah. asked him and this is what he said. No, like, that's true. I don't even know. So, yeah, you know. Who knows? I mean, but it is a really small town, so you probably... It is. Everybody knows everybody, everybody. So, who, so who knows? Yeah. Um, the VIN number matched her registration, and a piece of her license plate that read Lil Miss was found. 
Um, even though Lisa's car was found on his property and there was a DNA match, the authorities referred to Eaton only as a person of interest for the next few months. <clears throat> At this time, Eaton was in prison for at least another year. So police had to build, had time to build their case. So I think they were kind of taking their time. Yeah, I think they, they knew where he was at, where he was yeah, located. And they figured, so like, gather as much evidence as, as possible so that it's yeah. an airtight case. Yes. So while in prison in September 2001, Eaton was charged with manslaughter after punching his cellmate so hard that an artery ruptured and the man died. Like, this guy just can't pull it together. No. Like, he just can't fucking pull his shit together. He's a lifer. Just like, put him away and lock. Like why? Yeah. Why? Why are we wrestling with all this? Like seriously. Yeah. So the police were going through um, everything on Eaton's property, and they found um, some small drops of blood on the bus um, that he was living in at the time. However, the sample was too small, and they weren't able to test it. Uh, the police were taking their time trying to build <clears throat> this case as much as they could. And then Eaton was acquitted of those manslaughter charges and he was set to be released in June 2003. Um, in April 2003, Eaton was charged with first degree murder, premeditated murder, aggravated robbery, first degree sexual assault, second degree sexual assault and aggravated kidnapping. Um, Eaton was then held without bail. They announced they were seeking the death penalty, and this case went to trial in 2004. If you remember in the beginning, authorities thought that there were two people responsible for this crime. Uh, nobody else has ever been implicated. So it was, I think he was solo. So. Yeah, did they never even, did they ever suspect somebody else? No, right? It's in the beginning, like, they thought that there were two people. Okay. They did. But, um, but yeah, now they're saying that nobody else, um, had ever been implicated. So, okay. um, there was a jailhouse informant that said while behind bars, Eaton confessed to the murder of Lisa Kimmel, claiming that Lisa picked him up and offered him a ride. He then started to make sexual advances towards her. She got upset and from there it turned violent. There are so many twists and turns with this story about, what was told, what wasn't told, what was true, what wasn't true. Like, it's just all over the place. Like, but it's kind of hard to believe that a young girl would pick up a stranger in you. the middle of the night, like at 9, 10, whatever time it must have been, in the middle of the night. Yeah, like, I, we don't even, during the day, pull over to pick up men. No. And not even during that time. I don't even want to say, like, oh, in 88 it was common, because I don't think it was. So no. It no. just and, sounds and it highly unlikely. that this is not what her family or authorities believed would yeah. happen. Uh, more than likely, Lisa pulled over at a rest stop and was abducted at gunpoint or knife point. Um, I just think, like, at this point, like, her poor family has been through so much ups and downs. And, like, I just, after all this time to, like, finally get closure and, you know, they find this guy and then there's just story after story, like. Just, it's just, just rumors. It's just heartbreaking. Yeah. Um. So get this. So since Eaton had no running water, he would frequently use the facilities at the Walton rest stop, which is halfway between Moneta and Casper, Wyoming. When traveling wow. to her boyfriend Ed's house in Cody, Lisa would have driven past that rest stop. 
So there is a possibility that she stopped at the rest stop. And that's where he That would her. be my best guess is she had to stop somewhere. Yeah, of course. Yeah, because drive. I don't think she would have made it purposefully pick somebody up. So oh, no, of course no. not. My God. Yeah. yeah. Uh, during the trial, the prosecution told the jury that Lisa was likely held captive uh, somewhere between two to seven days before she was killed. Um, something else that was released in the trial was that a note was left on Lisa's uh, headstone in Billings, Montana in October of 1988, six months after her body was found. Um, and this is what the note said, which I don't know. It says, Lisa, there aren't words to say how much you are missed. The pain never leaves. It's so hard without you. You'll always be alive in me. Your death is my painful loss, but heaven's sweet gain. Love always, string fellow hawk. Have they found out who wrote this? So, Stringfellow Hawk was the name of the character that Jan Michael Vincent played um, on the show Airwolf. Um, Lisa's family was very bothered by this note because um, it says that they they knew her pretty well. And if this would have been like an inside joke that she had with somebody, her her parents and her friends and family feel like they, they this would have been it. something they would have been aware made aware of. Um, and they don't feel like she had, you know, any connection to this whatsoever. Um, early on, it was suspected that the killer left this note. The handwriting was compared to Eaton's and it was found to be consistent with his handwriting. That's just wrong. Creepy. I, there's no words. Um, when it was brought up in court, Eaton had a complete outburst when this testimony was given, and he said that he could prove that he was not the one that left the note on Lisa's grave. However, all the handwriting experts agreed um, that this writing was consistent with his, and so the defense was unable to exclude him. So um, Disgusting. The thing that stood out from this note was that Eaton shouldn't have known Lisa, and when saying that he missed her, um, it was odd because he didn't know her and had never met her um, unless he was the one that killed her. So um, it was a big deal to be able to tie this note to him on top of the DNA sample and her car being buried in his backyard, of course. Um, the defense knew that they had a losing case at this point <clears throat> and they thought that this was a case of second degree murder and not first degree murder, which basically wouldn't make this case eligible for the death penalty. Um, this was going to be hard for the defense to prove because Wyoming has a felony murder law, which makes any homicide committed while committing another felony, a case for first degree murder, which meant that they would have to prove that he wasn't responsible for the kidnapping, the robbery of Lisa's car and the sexual assault, which was not going to be easy to prove. Uh, Eaton was eventually found guilty on all counts. I'm so happy. Yeah. Well, buckle up buttercup. Cause it's not over yet. Stop. There can't be like, um, all I want to hear is he was put away or death penalty. One or the put away for life until death or death penalty. Right. That's where we're going with this. So, um, after he was found guilty on all counts, the defense put up some information regarding Eaton's mental health. 
He was given the global assessment of functioning test and he scored a 31. 91 is considered to be the start of a normal range. This obviously showed that there were uh, some impairments, clearly. Um, Eaton had some family members that testified on his behalf, saying that his dad was very abusive to him and picked on him quite a bit and worse than the other children in his family. However, these same people also had information that wouldn't show Eaton is too in a too good light, um, either saying that they have witnessed some of his violent outbursts um, and on other occasions, um, which they didn't go into, um, just proved him not to be a very good person. Uh, then the jury heard from a doctor <clears throat> saying that Eaton confessed to him that he did in fact kill Lisa. However, the story, um, no one had ever heard this story before. So he said that he came home on March 25th. This is the story that he told the doctor, which is ridiculous. But I'm going to tell you about the story anyway. Okay. Um, he said that he came home on March 25th to a car sitting on his property um, with what he thought to be two people sitting inside of it. Um, he thought at this time that he was being robbed, so he pulled out his gun. He then found out that it was only Lisa in the car, so he forced her into his bus where he held her for a few days so he wouldn't be alone for the Easter holiday. The fuck? And that, I, I was going to say, and that is better than... He did at that time admit to raping her and to murdering her. Um, there were a few issues with this story. Um, one being that it's not it's, true. Yeah. Um, that she just it wasn't Easter up. weekend. She oh. was not killed on Easter weekend. So, um, well, yeah, that's a so, huge, yeah. yeah. So, um, but yes, this was this was not a true story. So, um, after all of that testimony, the jury unanimously agreed on the death penalty. This happened on June third, two thousand four, and then Lisa's parents filed a wrongful death suit against Eaton. Um, at this time, the Kimmels obviously knew that Ethan had nothing obviously, but they wanted to make sure that in the future he never had anything either. Um, at this time, all he had was his bus <laughs> that he lived in um, and the property that he was gifted by his family, which was where his bus was at. In Moneta, right? Yeah. Okay. So um, at this time, Lisa's family was awarded the bus and the property. Um, the Kimmels then turned this property over to the local fire department for a training session where every single structure was torched, including the bus where authorities believed that Lisa was held in against her will before being murdered. Sweet justice. Yeah. Um, after Eaton was sentenced to death, he appealed it many times, most of which were denied until 2010. Eaton claimed that his attorneys did not explore enough into his life. He claimed that he had an extremely hard upbringing and that his family was poor in which him and all the children were denied adequate care. Um, Eaton's father was an abusive alcoholic. He also claimed that during an assault by his father, he sustained a serious head injury that went untreated. Um, his mom always tried to protect her children However, she also suffered from severe mental illness, later being diagnosed with schizophrenia. 
Um, she was also institutionalized after attempting to burn their house down. So it sounds like they have just mental illness everywhere. In this, but how much this of this is true? I mean, because of just the consistent lies coming from him. I like think, it just, yeah, I think I, I don't know how much of this was proved. Um, but I, I do feel like there is mental illness. Oh yeah, absolutely. Coming from, coming from that family. Yeah. yeah. Um, but he was able to get married. He had children. He, he was, did. um, but I mean, I, not saying that. I mean, I mean, I know people, that have severe intellectual disability and things like that, that they can still yeah, um, no. have a family and can still work and can still provide. No, but I agree. However, it kind of went into his schooling uh-huh. and stuff like that. And it, I found it really interesting because I didn't, I didn't type any of that out, but um, they said that he, they bounced around from like state to state and city to city. And there would be like, huge gaps of time that he would miss school. Okay. And he was like enrolled in a school in fourth grade when he technically should have been in sixth grade. And that he was like, when he was in high school, like he was just only in that grade because of his age. Like he had not passed all of his tests or whatever, his grade levels, like whatever it took to get to the next grade at that point. So mentally who knows like how old this man really was, you know? Um, not that that's an excuse. No, clearly, absolutely. He, clearly, not. he knows right from wrong. Yeah. Um, to go running still, and yeah. hiding and. Um, but he claimed that this area of his life should have been more fully explored, and therefore he was granted a new sentencing hearing based on this appeal. Um, the state had 120 days to present their case, or Eaton's sentence would be turned into life without the possibility of parole. The U.S. Supreme Court decided not to hear the case. Eaton's attorney said that he needed a mental health evaluation to see if he um, was even competent enough to be um, resentenced because according to his attorney, Eaton is mentally ill and extremely paranoid. Um, So fast forward to now we're in April of 2021. He spent 30 days in um, a psychiatric facility in a hospital being evaluated. Um, if he was found competent, he would return to court and be resentenced in a sentencing hearing that um, had been put on hold for over 10 years. Because, you know, now we're like in current time. Yeah, it took that this long is, to evaluate them. This too. has been put on hold, though. I'm sure COVID had a huge impact on this, too. But yeah. prior to that, like this case had been put on hold forever. Um. Which is just, I just can't, I can't even imagine like. But luckily he wasn't walking the streets during this time. He was still in prison, but still that limbo, the family just, yeah, not knowing what's going to happen. Is he going to get out? Is he getting, you know, it's just that Uh, question looming over. Yeah, absolutely. So um, on January 21st of this year, 2022, Eaton was scheduled to be resentenced. Um, however, Wyoming Department of Corrections failed to deliver him to the hearing. Um, Lisa's mom, Sheila, and her two sisters traveled from Colorado and Arizona to Casper, Wyoming, to see Eaton in person once again. Um, but unfortunately, they were robbed of that opportunity as Wyoming's Department of Corrections apologized and stated that they never got transport orders for the inmate. 
Eaton's trial was once again rescheduled for March of 22 to uh, 2022 this year, forcing the Kimmel family to have to travel back to Wyoming if they wished to read their victims impact statements in person, which they, it sounds like they really like, this was very important to them, which I can't even imagine. Like, you know, um, so on March 25th, exactly 34 years to the day since the last time that Lisa was seen, Eaton appeared in person in court being pushed in a wheelchair the judge sentenced him to life in prison without parole on the count of first degree premeditated murder, followed by 40 to 50 years for three counts of felony murder to be served consecutively. He received 20 to 25 years on counts of aggravated kidnapping, aggravated robbery and first degree sexual assault to be served concurrently. Sheila Kimmel and her two sisters, Sherry and Stacy were given the chance to speak at this hearing. While speaking, Sheila Kimmel added that her husband, Ron, who had just prior, uh, he had just passed away two years prior, was man enough to try to forgive him and that seeking the death penalty was the hardest damn decision in our life. Her father, after all of this, in his impact statement, was going to tell the man that murdered his daughter, I am man enough to forgive you. All they wanted was an apology. Yeah. They wanted him to apologize. Um, In closing, Kimmel told Eaton that um, he should apologize. Uh, After the judge issued the sentence, Eaton spoke with his counsel and his defense attorney said he wants to say he's sorry. So he can, he didn't say it himself. He didn't. And that part really got me, but is he allowed to speak? I, I think, I, you know what, to be honest with you, I don't know. I don't know the rules in it. I don't know if it varies state to state. I don't know. Um, Just the fact, though, that her father, I mean, first of all, it's heartbreaking to know that he passed not even all these years later and I was still say, not even yeah. having closure on this I was going to say that it just took so long that um, – do you know how old he was? Who? Right, how old he is now? The um, um, Eaton, Eaton, the murderer. Um, I want to say he's seventy six years old now. Okay, and doesn't he's, look like he's in great shape. Yeah, but it took that long for justice that the father can even do that. But nineteen eighty eight, when this happened, I was in, I was graduating from the eighth grade. Um. Yeah, we won't and say now, what I was at. No, just kidding. I was and, a junior. But like, just to yeah. think, like that's when this took place. Yeah. And this barely happened. That these families just got closure this year. Just now, um, my thing is, uh, there's granted, so much you that can, I'm thinking. Granted, about, you but, can take away the the chunk of time that you know was lost, obviously due to DNA processing and all that. But yeah, it's still a that's really long time. Still twenty years um, of uncertainty. Um, I just I've heard that when people forgive others they're not really doing it for the sake of the person they're forgiving if they're doing it for the sake of themselves of course yeah because to carry that much hatred and that much and harbor that you just can't you can't can't function you can't go on i i don't know personally how i would do it i don't know yeah i don't know if i could but i give a lot of kudos and a lot of props to people who can like Mm -hmm. because it takes a lot 
takes a big courage. person to do that. Yeah, it, it's just a lot of courage to move when that's beyond that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to move beyond that point and to get to that point of forgiveness. I just, I would yeah, be able to do it. It's a lot. But, yeah. But, so, um, yeah, so that um, yeah. was the end of our story. Um, and if you go to our YouTube channel, we'll have pictures of places we travel where we saw some of these locations. Um, yes. And I was going to say that that's the reason why we sometimes go to these locations. So we can kind of see, you know, where we know that, yes, it was a difficult road to find. Yes. You know, things like that. That's why it's so important for us. Mm-hmm. Because if you just read about it, you know, you don't really no. see the, see what they're talking about. In it. No, and like you, you never know what you're going to find. Like, you know, I think finding those flowers there. Yeah. Like that was um, at least... In my mind, I want to believe that those were placed there for her. I do, too. Um, And hopefully, you know, they were. And that's just somebody still keeping her memory alive, you know? Absolutely. Um, But um, I like to thank Gina and Keith for holding up the show uh, while my voice is cracking in and out. I didn't introduce um, my actual co-host for this episode, um, Mr. Keith Morrison. Yeah, there. there it is from Mr. Keith Morrison. <laughs> thank you, Mr. Keith, for coming on. Um, yes, so yeah, so thank you my, so much. Keith was my co-host tonight. Yeah, um, I've been a little bit out of commission, so I haven't been really holding up my end this week. So yeah. Gina, too, thank you. You know, so yeah, so uh, we'll see. Yeah, but, well, where um, where can they find us? They can find us on TikTok and on Instagram and on YouTube at 50 States of Madness and on Patreon if you would like to support us. Thank you. Huge shout out after um, after we filmed or after we filmed. After we, <laughs> after record. we recorded with uh, Reform Radio with Dan and Heidi, we got um, a few more Patreons. So there we go. So shout out to thank you um, so much. Yeah, to to really the people it. who joined from Rare Form Radio, and I feel like I've known those people for so many years. It's so funny because you make so many friends over all these years, and like a lot of these people, I've never even met in person, but I feel like I know them. They're like like my friends, you know. Like you communicate, um, you talk to them. Do yeah. yeah. So um yeah, so I appreciate that. Um, and so, Absolutely. Yeah. so well, we will be back next week. I'm not sure what we'll be back with. Um, please excuse me if you hear my family is having a I feel a like we're having a really big there. party going on out Man, there. my family is living it up tonight. This is usually a pretty quiet household, but... Um, not tonight. I have a house full of people right now, and yes. they're having a rager in my living room. <laughs> so, yeah, so please excuse sure. that. Um so yeah, we will be back um, next week, yeah, and hopefully, I have a voice next yeah, and week. Hopefully, she'll have a voice. <laughs> and so, yeah, thank you so much. All right, have thank a good you. One. Bye. Bye.